everyone. This is Caden, and you are listening to Happy Hour History. Uh, we are back for, uh, it's like sort of season two. I don't know. It's not really official. I just took a long hiatus. Sorry about that. But we're back. Uh, I'm here with my friend Kara. Hi, Kara. Hello. And Kara is a friend of the podcast. She's actually a supporter of the podcast. Uh, we met through podcasting. So it turns out if you like this show enough, you can, in fact, accidentally end up on this show. Like, it's possible. I'm living proof, obviously. I wouldn't recommend it, but it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> but so we are back, and um, I've been kind of thinking you know, based on like recent events and things that have happened on how I can be making this show uh, more inclusive, more kind of diverse in the topics and the places and the time periods and all of that. Um, basically, just the people we talk about, making sure that we're kind of hitting a lot of different marks. Um, so first, right off the bat, to kind of start off this unofficial season two, uh, we're going to start with somebody that I'd actually never heard of before. So I had a really fun time researching somebody that Kara has never heard of before, and she's the history podcast queen. I promise so I don't know this lady. So <laughs> this is going to be interesting. I, I had the pr- pinky promise here. That I wouldn't Google, I wouldn't inadvertently <laughs> research, I wouldn't look up even a sl- like a picture and anything. No, because- you're not allowed. To- <laughs> then I would so, find yeah. everything. So we kept this top secret. I sent you the name. I said, "Do you know this name?" She said, "No." And then I said, "Don't look her up." <laughs> I basically um, had to immediately eject myself, like from yeah, that combo, so I didn't even get thing. tempted. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, today we're talking about Miriam Makeba. Uh, And I had a really fun time researching her. She is a musician, so I got to listen to a lot of music. Uh, She's like a more modern, like, 50s, Oh, I'm excited. Um, So I am going to attempt to put music in this episode. We'll see how that goes. Um, But regardless, I'll be naming a couple of songs throughout the episode. Um, So you guys can always go do a little YouTube search. But yeah, I had a really fun time because it was somebody that was so different from most of the people that I've done so far. So Miriam Makeba, or she also became known as Mama Africa. Oh, and before we start, um, I should always just preface that we will probably be swearing. We are definitely drinking. And sorry, Mom. Not sorry, Mom. (laughs) So Maria McCabe, she uh, is born in South Africa. She was actually born with, under the name, and I should preface again, well, not again, but another preface, rather. I am going to make a lot of pronunciation mistakes in this story, and that is totally my fault. Um, it's a kind of combination of the fact that, like, it, there's a lot happening in other languages, and it's also partially that... Uh, 
Some of them are in languages that I can't even pretend to speak. Uh, and we'll get into that. But essentially, some of the words are going to be in Kosa, which is a language name that I can't even properly pronounce because there should be a click in there and I can't do that. Um, but the like American English pronunciation is Kosa. And that is one of the clicking languages that you hear about uh, from Africa. And obviously, I don't have that capacity. So there's going to be some fun mispronunciations, but we're going to go with it. So uh, she was born as Zenzile Miriam Makeba, uh, and that was on the 4th of March, 1932 in Prospect, uh, which was a predominantly black town outside of Johannesburg. And that is because at the time, there had been a law in 1923, which was basically there to make sure that black South Africans couldn't really like be living in the city unless they were there working for white people. It's called the, well, it, this is pre-apartheid. Um, but like, yeah, it's like a precur. It's like, you know, it's one of those laws that like technically doesn't take place in apartheid times. But yeah, it's like super racist and not good. Um, but it's not under that like government, I suppose. If I guess it's sense. a racial economic um, yeah. issue still though. Underlying. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the same racism. It's just not under that, like, actual government that that rules during apartheid. So it's still but, shitty, different name. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was called the Natives Urban Areas Act. And so um, since they couldn't be in the city itself, um, a lot of, like, the suburbs around the city would have, like, put predominantly black areas. So that's why she grows up, or she's born in Prospect. And her mother was called Christina. She was Swazi, which is like kind of her specific ethnic group. It's part of the Bantu tribe. And um, she was a healer and a domestic worker. So she was one of uh, the women who'd be working in like these white households. Uh, but she also worked as a healer within Prospect. Her father was called Casewell. I assume I'm pronouncing that one wrong because he was Kosa. Um, so for all I know, that that might be a mispronunciation of his name. Uh, and her father was a teacher. He also uh, was a pretty talented musician. So she did grow up with like a decently musical family. I think I get into that later, uh, but it's worth saying now. Uh, her mother, Christina's pregnancy with Miriam was very difficult and the birth easily could have killed her. It did not, but her first name, Zenzile, comes from a Kosa word that basically means you brought this on yourself. Ooh. Because Christina's mother, and so obviously Miriam's grandmother, uh, would kind of mutter it under her breath a lot during the pregnancy. Like, oh, girl, you brought this on yourself. Well, fair, I guess. So I assume they took it, like, as a tongue-in-cheek name. And, you know. <laughs> but, like, she gave it to her own daughter. So I'm, I'm thinking, like, she wasn't bitter about the whole thing. <laughs> um, but that's kind of a funny story. No, that's so. <laughs> I feel like it would be, you know, it'd be kind of awkward in life being like, you brought this on yourself, Miriam Makeba. So she mostly went by Miriam. Uh, I can understand um, that. Yeah. So uh, when when she was 18 days old, her mother was arrested for brewing and selling her own beer. What? At the Yeah, I know. At the time in South Africa, um, you could only drink beer at 
the beer halls that they ran that they like had and they were actually run by local governments so anything else was considered illegal so it's not quite the same as like american prohibition where it's just outlawed generally um it was just more like government wanted to control the consumption of alcohol and tax Uh, it i'm sure yeah i'm sure you can't tax moonshine and you can't tax uh i guess homemade beers yeah so the beer that she made was illegal and uh when they caught her for doing that it was a six-month sentence or she could have paid a fine for beer yeah for beer how much was the fine um i think it wasn't actually that much i don't have it written down unfortunately but i think it was in like the hundreds of dollars not like the thousands but it was too much for them to just drop all at once Mm. um so actually she ended up going to prison her mother and because miriam was 18 days old and she was still being breastfed she actually went to jail for six months with her mother too oh no so she's wow but that's really crappy altogether like first off that doesn't seem like a crime like a punishment befitting the crime i mean it does not like that's bad pr you're putting a breastfeeding mother in jail for making beer (laughs) and i think like I could be wrong about this, but, like, her mother did a lot um, in the community in terms of, like, her healing and stuff that was very, um, like, based in their cultural practices. And so, as far as I could tell from what I was reading about the, like, the production of the alcohol, like, obviously, first of all, it's, you know, like, like a thing done in their home. It's not, like, some wide-scale production kind of thing. But it was, like, a small thing, but I also think it was... Not necessarily, like, cultural or anything, but, like, it was the way that they probably would have been doing it, which I guess is cultural, um, for, like, in the past as well. So it kind of had, like, it was just kind of, like, something that you passed down in your family. So the fact that they decided to send her for j- to jail for six months and then she had to take her infant daughter with her is, like, it's not great. Just for anyone. No. But I bet the conditions of jail were not anything to smile over either. I mean, I they can't be. No. I mean, given I wouldn't want to be in jail anyway, but especially not <laughs> in 1930s South Africa. No, not particularly. Um, so eventually, obviously, she gets out of jail six months later. Uh, she grows up in Prospect. Her father dies when she's about five or six years old. Um, And at this point, she is sent to live with her grandmother. And that is because her mother was working uh, for a white family at the time. And because she was working with this white family, as far as I can tell, she was also probably living with them. And so she wasn't living with her children. And once their father passed away, they, you know, like that kind of Mm. caused issues. So... Uh, they went to live with their grandmother. Uh, she did have brothers and sisters. I don't have the exact number on that. Um, but she wasn't like an only child. Uh, and they were sent to their grandmother. Uh, she grew up loving to sing in church from a really young age. And she could sing in multiple languages, including English. As uh, a she kid? Was actually, yeah. Yeah, multiple languages. I mean, she was actually singing in English before she could speak the language. So there was a point where she was singing words that she did not understand. Uh, But she did become fluent later on in English as well as several other languages. So uh, she was obviously like very linguistically gifted. 
I would think singing would be a good way to like learn a language, even if you don't understand what you're, I guess, saying. Yeah. And honestly, um, you know, she's just one of those people that clearly like, like we have obviously we haven't gotten into any of this yet, but she's somebody that was very well traveled and had kind of felt the importance of like learning all these languages. So a lot of the languages for pretty obvious reasons that she's well versed in are various African languages. Um, which is kind of nice for her because as she as a singer when she would be kind of traveling around, uh, it would be a lot easier for her to connect with people. Um, but yeah, she learns English as well as a child. Uh, she also sang on top of singing with her church, she sang with her school. Uh, her school is called the Kelnerton Training Institution, which was a Methodist school that was uh, for black students. And it was in Pretoria, which is where her grandmother lived. Um, and her first solo, apparently, was, uh, I believe, with her school. And it was in 1947 during the royal visit, which was attended by the, uh, the king at the time, King George VI. Queen Elizabeth, who we would consider the Queen Mother now, but Queen Elizabeth, uh, Bull's Lion, and uh, their daughters, Princess Elizabeth, obviously our current queen, and Princess Margaret. Uh, she would have been around 15 at the time that they visited. So that would have been pretty exciting. That is exciting. She would have, I would think, <laughs> remember it, I would think. but Yeah, that would have been a big deal for her. During this time as well, Miriam also starts working as a domestic servant for white families alongside her mother um, because she's getting a bit older. And so she is leaving school and needing to start kind of providing for herself. Uh, besides her time in the choir, Miriam's life was really heavily influenced by music. As I mentioned earlier, her father was a musician. He played the piano. Um, her mother played several traditional instruments. And her brother collected records. Uh, he had a lot of records from American singers as well, like Ella Fitzgerald. Mm. So she kind of grew up with that influence in her life as well. And then uh, when she was around 17 or 18, uh, she marries a man called James Kube. And uh, she was pretty young, obviously, about 17 or 18. And at this point, she also has a child with him. They have a daughter called Angela McCaba, although they called her Bonky. Um, and that's the only child she ever has is her daughter, Angela. Her husband was reportedly, like, not a very nice guy to her. Uh, he oh, no. was reported that he beat her. And uh, she ended up leaving him two years into the marriage. So wow. she was already a divorcee by like around age 19 or 20. I can't imagine like being married, let alone divorced as a teenager. And like, like you already have a baby. That's like, I don't know. But did she get custody of the kid or? I actually don't really know exactly. Like Angela Bongi Makeba sort of like appears and disappears within the story. Uh, so for a lot of the story, she's not that relevant. So I'm not exactly sure what she was doing at the time. Um, but eventually she spends quite a while going on tour. So I don't think she would have had her daughter with her at those moments. But in these early years, I'm not certain. Um, but Miriam then starts performing as more of a professional singer. So she starts out in one of her cousin's bands called the Cuban Brothers. Um kind of as like 
just there to help out and be like a soloist sometimes. And then eventually she begins to sing with a different group called the Manhattan Brothers, which is confusing. I don't know if it was like a thing to have your band name have brothers in it. Uh, but the Manhattan Brothers were like a quartet and she would sometimes sing with them. She starts singing with them in 1954. And at that point, she sort of starts to build herself a reputation. And the Manhattan Brothers blended traditional gospel, Afro jazz, jive, doo-wop, Swing ragtime with music or acapella. So it sounds like a good time, honestly. Sounds fun. Um, and she was the only woman. Like She wasn't technically like, I don't know if she's technically in the band because it was mainly just the four guys, but she would kind of come in and like do stuff with them. So she was the only woman that was like sort of in the band. Uh, and she recorded her first hit song with them. And I know that I'm going to butcher this, but it's such a beautiful song that I want to shout it out so it's called La Cucha Ilonga like as soon as I started listening to this one I just like never really stopped this one's a jam um, unfortunately it has a very very sad meaning so oh. voice i can't understand what she's saying honestly like yeah it's it's really i've been listening to it on my spotify because i found them on spotify first um and i i had them i like had to like them all so i wouldn't lose them but yeah it's a it's a really good song so was this like let's see was this one of her first singles or yeah this is one of the earlier songs in her repertoire um and then I have a little bit, like, for some reason, I don't know why I've ordered the notes this way, but I have a little bit more before I explain more about that song. So we're just going to keep going. Uh, <laughs> okay. So she recorded that song, obviously, with the Manhattan Brothers. Uh, during this time, she also performed with a band called the Skylarks. And that was an all-women's group. And she usually worked with them, like, because she wasn't, I don't, as far as I can tell, she wasn't, like, um like a consistent member of that group sort of like with the Manhattan brothers, like they were a group that existed and then like she would kind of come in and do stuff with them. Um, and it was generally because uh, when the Manhattan brothers would go on tour outside of the country, she would stay and do stuff with the Skylarks. Um, she would sometimes do con like, she'd obviously do concerts with uh, the Manhattan brothers inside of the country, but uh, she didn't really leave with them. And then um, eventually, though, she does end up getting to do a bit of a tour. They go, uh, obviously, in South Africa itself and then to Zimbabwe and the Congo. Um, wow. 
And so, yeah, so she got a little taste of some other places at that point. Uh, the Manhattan Brothers, like all um, essentially non-white bands at the time, uh, were actually prohibited from recording in English, uh, which is sort of weird. One of the uh, articles that I was reading about it uh, was talking about how it sort of did like the weird, like, I guess at the time officials thought it was a way to like maybe tamp down on spreading any messages about like disliking what was happening in the country. But in doing that, it also heavily promoted like the use of traditional languages, which in some places like that's actually the first thing you'd want to tamp down on if you're trying to. Uh, True. Like, you know, like that's something that if you're trying to make everybody sort of assimilated, which obviously we don't like and it, it's not good looking back. But if that's what you were trying to do, then making everybody speak the same language is a pretty easy way to start. Um, and so they were actually like accidentally promoting um, like people singing. Multilingual. And, yeah. And so and the thing is that when when the people don't necessarily speak those languages, like when the white officials don't know what you're saying in your songs, it's like, oh, who's going to stop us? So um, not that this song had like any like particularly bad or subversive messages or anything. Um, but yeah, so essentially it was kind of an interesting thing that happened to the Manhattan Brothers and all these bands at the time not being able to perform in English. Um, having said that, the song became popular in English-speaking countries. It ended up, you know, getting out of Africa and finding its way to people in America and to Europe. And they really liked the song, which makes sense because we both thought it was a really beautiful song. And so they decided, uh, somebody kind of reached out to her and said, we'd really like to do an English version of this song. And it took some convincing because at the time that wasn't permitted to be done. Uh, but she did end up recording an English version of the song in 1956. Now, I want to say it's an English version, um, but it's not a translation. And that oh. is because um, the original song, La Cuche Lianga, is a song about um, a woman, I believe, who is running around checking hospitals and jails for her lost lover oh. because she's certain that he was either injured or arrested by the apartheid regime. So she doesn't know where he is, and she's just going to every hospital and every jail because she doesn't know what happened to him. That's sad. And so, obviously, like, I guess my thing is, is that you could, you could make an English song out of that. Um, some of the articles that I was reading were, like, trying to make the argument that they completely changed the song. Because they just basically gave it totally new lyrics uh, that had nothing to do with this story. And some of the articles that I was reading were kind of making the argument that they did this because without the context of being inside of South Africa and having the apartheid regime, like as an omnipresent thing in your life without that being there 
it wouldn't really have the same message. But I guess my thought was that's a very white way of thinking about it because, you know, African-American people in America would have perfectly related to a song about a woman having to check hospitals and jails for her lover. Like, yeah, I feel like that's no. not, especially at that time uh, when any kind of protest was still met with, I mean, not that today is any different, but. Uh, any kind of protest being met with like really harsh uh, blowback. I feel like that still could have resonated with people, but I assume this was something that was being decided by like white music execs. And so they weren't oh, I'm sure. that way. Um, so they essentially, they gave the song entirely new lyrics. Mm. It became known as lovely lies. Um, and it's still a really beautiful song. Obviously for me, like I kind of enjoy listening to it just because I know what she's saying. Um, I prefer Lakuchi Lyonga, but Lovely Lies is like, it's nice too. I guess knowing the original meaning, you know what I mean? That would probably yeah. take the enjoyment yeah. <laughs> out of listening to the, the English one, like version simply because that's a form of censorship. Like, yeah. or, you know what I mean? Like on the music execs part. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I just think the best art is always uncensored. Um, and I I can see their point of view, but man, I, I think I already know I'm going to enjoy the original more. <laughs> yeah, I do prefer the original. Um, the other one's nice, but it does become sort of a generic like song about a lover who's just like, I mean, I don't really know. It's sort of about somebody who's like not unfaithful, but just not like it's not working out some of the lyrics for people listening you tell such lovely lies with your two lovely eyes when i leave your embrace another takes my place your kiss that i adore makes me come back for more although my heart is wise to all your lovely lies the devil is a woman so enticing and oh so beguiling etc etc so it's just kind of about like a lover who's not very i don't know it's responsive yeah, it's like it's not really about being faithful because it doesn't seem like they're like really in a committed relationship. It's like maybe somebody who won't commit at all. I don't know, but I mean, it would be a nice song if it was written that way and it had never been anything else. But once you know it was something else, you're like, ah, this is just kind of generic. I don't know. Like, it's just a, a generic sized version yeah. of a really poignant. Piece, yeah, it just sort of a generic jazzy piece. It's a good song, but yeah, I definitely prefer the original. You tell such lovely lies with your two lovely eyes when I leave your embrace. That takes my place And the devil is a woman So enticing And oh, so beguiling Thank you. 
first, I did not. I was listening to these two songs, and I was like, wait a minute. Are these the same? Oh, so it took you... <laughs> it took me a hot second. I was like, I was like humming one of them, and then I was humming one of them to the other, and I was like, wait a gosh darn minute. <laughs> I figured it you out. You just center yourself. No, honestly, that's just that was just how that was meant to come out. Oh. No, I like the first better, but it's nice being able to understand. That was my thing is like, I kind of like this one just because I can sing along to it. Because sometimes I'm in the shower and I'm like, you tell something about, but like, you can't do that <laughs> the one. True. I mean, it'd be impressive. Yeah. I mean, I could try, but I'm going to tell you, it's it. if somebody who spoke the language ever heard me do it, it, it would be bad. It'd be, it'd be blasphemous in a way. <laughs> language blasphemy. <laughs> I'm just like, sorry, are any of those words? <laughs> Just me, what are like, you doing? Gobbly, <laughs> 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 like, that's not, it's not even close. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so, um, so she ends up recording this song in English, and uh, it did actually slightly sour her on singing in English in the future, um, because she wasn't really happy with the translation, or not, not translation, but she wasn't really happy with. The English version of it, I suppose. It was obviously very different and lacking to what the original had, in her opinion. Um, having said that, she would continue to sing in English along with the other indigenous languages that she sang in uh, for the rest of her life. The only what were those language, other languages? Do you know? I don't. I mean, I know she sings in Kosa, but I don't have like a list of all the languages she sang in specifically. Um, I wonder if she's saying in uh, Zulu, maybe. I she might. Honestly, it became a. This has kind of come way down the line, um, but she ended up singing a lot in different languages because when she would tour uh, later on in her life through Africa, when she was much more famous, um, it was kind of like a point of pride to her to like sing in all of the different languages of the different places. Um, so even even if she maybe didn't always know the language itself, obviously she had people who were like helping to make it possible to sing in their languages. So that's pretty cool. So she, it was something that's kind awesome. of important to her. Um, that's awesome though that she from a get go wanted to like be able to communicate. Yeah, with- and the I think the most the most interesting one to me is that uh, the only language she ever like notedly refused to sing in was Afrikaans for pretty Mm. obvious reasons but Afrikaans being kind of the language of the white South Africans and she said that she would sing in their language when they would sing in hers fair which I kind of love so yeah so she never sang in Afrikaans but she would sing in English which she was fine with um and then in the 1950s, early 1950s, when all of this is happening, uh, she, originally she lived in Sophia Town slash Sophia Town. It sounds right in my head to say Sophia Town, but I'm pretty sure Sophia Town's actually correct. Um, and so she was living in this town. It is another one of those like kind of suburbs. I don't know if it's really suburban, but it's it's basically just right outside Johannesburg. Um. And so, again, it was predominantly black. It was a really vibrant place uh, when she was kind of first there. And one of the few areas where it was kind of more accepting of, like, racial mixing. Because, obviously, 
Uh, there were there were no like ordinances against black people being there, um, so it made it easier for that to occur. Uh, it was a big kind of musical scene. They had a lot of like big band and African jazz, and there was just a lot happening in the in the area at the time, in kind of like the very very early fifties. <laughs> um, however, having said that. Uh, the National Party came had come to power in 1948, and they were the party that were ushering in uh, the like official years of apartheid. So, like we talked about earlier, mm. um, obviously there had been racist laws going back, like way back. Um, but now that uh, the National Party was in power and the country was like decolonizing, um, apartheid became like the official kind of rule of law yeah like the official way yeah the government was kind of operating the country um and so uh they eventually passed in 1954 a native resettlement act which was uh used to force black south africans out of johannesburg even further and that included forcing them out of sophia town and you know as as a her being a female too i'm sure like she had multiple things you know what i mean that yeah. she had to deal with like i'm sure like sexual violence you know is always predominantly not always but it's chiefly a lot of times against women of color and then in an area that's literally glorifying racial segregation yeah so it's just like oh. it's just problems on top of problems like societally both for her and for everyone I guess to put it on the timeline, like, in I know we're in South Africa in this situation, but like, is this what, what I guess what would be overlapping in the United States right now, maybe? Uh, so early nineteen fifties, I think around the time, and well, nineteen fifty four was that? Let's see. Uh, in nineteen fifty four, the civil rights movement gained momentum when the United States Supreme Court. Uh, made segregation illegal in public schools in the case of Brown versus Board of Education. In 1955, uh, Rosa Parks had um, obviously her kind of protest and then the like whole bus protest in uh, Montgomery that followed. So that would have been 55. So that was right around the same time because this was being ushered in in 54 slash 55. So yeah. Wow. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail that. I was just trying oh, to no, think, like, right. in terms of, like, I guess history I'm kind of familiar with. Yeah. To, like, get a picture in my head of what time period it is. So, yeah. I mean, things are happening in America, like, same time. But, obviously, you know, it's all kind of awful in retrospect, like, how slow. Oh, and- absolutely. So, it's not great. But, yeah, there's kind of similar. And that's why I think that Lucucci Ilyanga could have had an English translation that was closer to like an actual translation of the song rather than just like a rewritten. But I, I really think they were just thinking of white audiences when they did that. It's always so weird to me how like people would think, let's just target this towards white people. Like, I like it probably wasn't like, even thought. They were like, oh my god, listen to this cool African music. It's so different and diverse and ethnic and like all these like terrible things now that we try not to like say but they're like oh my god it's so different and unique and then they like stripped all the actual important stuff out of it and just made it like a generic jazzy song by a woman who happened to not be living in america 
So that was as exotic as they would consider it. And I mean exotic <laughs> from their point of view because they it's just weird to me. Again, I can just imagine the people just saying that this this was as far as they could go with, you know what I mean, embracing different cultures. We'll embrace your culture, but only if you make it exactly like ours. Only after you completely sanitize and censor down anything that would make me think. A little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) If it makes me think about how I treat black people in this country, then I don't want it. So, that's not good. But yeah, art should make people uncomfortable, I think. It yeah. should confront. Like, that's in my mind. It least. should make people think, and it should make people, like, question their own beliefs and the beliefs of the people around them. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, but whatever. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, basically, we're just ragging on people in the past, because that's what we do. Why not? <laughs> people are always shitheads, though. Yeah. There's always a shithead out there. Yes. So, in 1955, uh, the head of the South African government basically sent 2,000 policemen armed with their stun guns and rifles to Sophia Town, and they essentially forced about 60,000 inhabitants to be removed. Oh. And in the process, like, destroyed parts of the area. Oh, no. And they were forced to go to a place called the Meadowlands, now, while this was all happening, there was music being written, um, and there was one artist called Strike Vilakezi, and he wrote a song called Meadowlands, obviously after the place that they were kind of being forced to move to, and Miriam would actually cover the song, and she would help popularize it, but it was originally uh, someone else's, like I said. And the song was written in one of the indigenous languages. I don't know which one in particular, which is my bad. Um, But it was a very upbeat song. And the lyrics were sort of deceptive because they would say things like, we're moving night and day to go to the Meadowlands. We love Meadowlands. Um, And because the government was like looking at the song and um, when they were dealing with censorship things they were looking at the song and they were just seeing like a positive set of lyrics and like it's like i said it's a really upbeat kind of fun song um so because of all that they were taking it literally and they were like oh cool like everyone's happy not everyone but they're like this guy's happy to go to the meadowlands like if they're singing that song and like they're singing it with him then like it's actually positive propaganda whereas Mm -hmm. Everyone who actually was, like, within the Black community being forced out of their homes understood that it was meant to be ironic. Um, so a double meaning. So the government was actually, like, really friendly with this singer. And they did not realize, I don't think, at any point. Irony. Yeah, that he, it was, like, not. That was not how they viewed it. So, again, that's why the government's not very smart. But. I mean, it worked for them, and they were able to be, like, singing this song, and then she eventually sang it as well. Basically, uh, use irony, folks. Yeah. If you're going to dissent, do it with irony. The government can't tell. real dumb. <laughs> uh, so there's another song that she sang as well called Sophia Town is Gone. So I'm going to play that one as well. 
And this one, again, is kind of like, except for the beginning, it's a pretty upbeat song throughout. And it is in English, which is another interesting thing about it. Because, again, most songs at the time would not have been. I don't actually know. I had a lot of trouble finding out when some of these songs were recorded. So I don't know if she was singing this one at the time or if it was something that happened much later, in which case singing it in English would have been a lot easier. Um, some of these are really hard to track down the exact year that they were either first recorded or first even just sang before the recording happened. But... That was amazing. It's a really, it's a good song. It is. And it's like, it starts slow and then gets upbeat. That's why I said the beginning is kind of like a little, not like sadder, but it's just a very different tone to the rest of the song. But they really did high. I mean, this one's obviously in English, so nothing's really hidden. But like, there's kind of a deceptive joy if you're just listening purely to the music and you're not really focusing on lyrics at all true yeah because you'd hear that beat and be like oh this is happy i mean it's i I think it's a fun song to listen to but it has very sad history (laughs) but yeah i've definitely been in the shower like listening to my miriam mccabe like shampooing my hair and doing my little dance so (laughs) you know it's still a jam it's still it hold it it holds up today it does. I mean, with any of the classics, like, really. And uh, she would later go on to say that uh, people say I sing politics, but what I sing is not politics. It is the truth. And Ooh, that's, I love that. Something that she would continue to say for quite a long time. I probably have more similar quotes, like, scattered throughout. I need a necklace with that. That's yeah. amazing. But yeah, that's a basically, like, she would kind of stick to that throughout her life like it's not that I'm trying to be political or subversive or any of that this is just my reality and that's what I'm singing about and if you're ashamed of what my reality is then maybe you need to ask yourself why yeah why are you uncomfortable with her truth basically but yes that's something that she kind of held to throughout her life so towards the end of the 50s uh, she was involved in a couple of interesting projects Uh, In 1959, she was in a jazz musical called King Kong. Uh, It's confusing, but it's not about that King Kong. That is confusing. Yeah. Um, It was was sort of meant to be similar to, like, Broadway shows. It was considered an all-African jazz opera. Oh. 
So, I mean, Hamilton gave us the hip hopra. We had the the Jopra for the jazz opera. Jazz opera? Hip hopra, Jopra. Jopra. We're just dropping the A. Um, but yes, yeah, so she's involved in this project for King Kong. It was a story about a boxer who killed his sweetheart. And basically, at the end of the musical, he asks the judge for the death penalty, and the judge refuses because obviously he feel he, as in the guy who's called King Kong, um, he feels guilty for killing his lover, so he wants the death penalty, but he is not given it. And then, uh, like two weeks into his jail sentence, he finds a way to drown himself, and so it's a tragedy. Oh, um, that took a twist. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot before that all happens. That's sort of closer to the end. There's a lot of, you know, context that happens in the beginning part of, like, where the lover is still alive. And, you know, you got to care about her before he kills her. But, yeah, that's the end of it. And um, it actually ended up being a, a pretty big success in South Africa. Uh, and to avoid the apartheid laws that were kind of dividing the public it was mostly performed at universities um but when she was in it she was in it uh in its like initial run and as far as i can tell which is actually very difficult to find uh i think she played the character the main female character joyce which was the sweetheart character and there was actually another member of the manhattan brothers in the production and he played uh the the boxer king Oh, sweet. So she got to work with one of the guys in the Manhattan Brothers. I sort of assume that that's, like, how they kind of ended up in it. Like, their band must have known someone or something, and they kind of ended up in it together. That makes it easy. So, yeah, because I think a lot of people that she knew were kind of involved in the process. Um, Around the same time, she was also involved in a film. Um, and it's called Comeback Africa. It was a production done by an American independent filmmaker called Lionel Rogeson, I think is how his name is pronounced. Um, he, it, it's kind of confusing. I'll admit I did not watch Comeback Africa, so I don't know firsthand exactly how it works, but reading about it was kind of confusing. Um, it seems like it's a weird blend of fiction and nonfiction because technically it uses actors and there is sort of a storyline, but it also seems like the storyline was coming from their actual experiences, like not just people's experiences, but like as far as I could tell, the actual actors' experiences. Um, and so that kind of made it like a weird mix of like a documentary and like a regular like fictional film it was kind of a a bizarre blend that i don't really understand but it sounds interesting um it was filmed without government permission so the people involved very easily could have been imprisoned if they had been caught oh man yeah so it wasn't like great Uh, i guess the filmmakers who were doing it actually said they were coming in and filming in like or filming like a musical not king kong i know it 
like crossover, but it's not that. I guess musicals at the time were like a big thing to be doing, even on film. And so that's what the government thought they were doing, and it's not what they were doing. Like Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, kind of, I guess. That make, I mean, it, right time. Kind of a weird place, like, just let's just go to South Africa, but whatever. Um, the Sound of Music. Yeah. Um, that's what the government thought, maybe. <laughs> they were like, let's do it, it's fine. Um, yeah, Makeba, she didn't actually act in the film, so she wasn't one of those, like, weird sort of actors, but she sang in it. And um, there there were a lot of interesting reviews of the film. I stole one from an author called Nina Hibben, and she worked for a paper called The Daily Worker, which was like a London-based um, paper. And Nina wrote, Burning with integrity, it is the most damning indictment of apartheid and the past system, which is like the laws about how you can get in and out of the city. Um, if you are a black person, essentially. Um, sorry, I'm going back into the quote now. So the most damning indictment of uh, the apartheid and the past system that I have ever seen. In a climax of almost unbearable anger and frustration, it beats out a question which, though unspoken, must be in the mind of everyone who sees it. How long are we going to allow these appalling conditions to exist? So... Nina's throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah, pretty. What's the word for it? Just. I can't think of it, but you know what I mean? It's pretty damning, I guess. Yeah. She's really, she's kind of going all in. I guess, you know, when you're in London, you can be as critical as you like because you're nowhere near the actual apartment. Good point. It's a little easier when you're not right there. The film was actually banned from being shown in South Africa once, obviously, they realized what was being filmed. Um. (laughs) So South Africans could not see the film, but it ended up being really successful with audiences um, in Europe and America. And it actually, they went to the Venice Film Festival and it won awards there. And this is a, so this is the kind of interesting part. So the director, Lionel Rogerson, he paid, um, as far as I could tell, to sneak Miriam out of the country. Oh. So that she could attend the film festival with him. And that was seen as um, kind of like an integral part of um, of screening the film at a big kind of renowned film festival. It was having the voice of somebody who was actually involved both in the film, but like had firsthand experience just being a black woman in South Africa under this government and what it meant for her like daily life and the things that she'd seen so having her there was quite important um and so yeah he he paid to have her like shipped out of the country oh my she went to the film festival and then from there she went to london uh she spent a little bit of time there she met um the african-american singer harry belafonte and he became sort of a mentor to her um, at this point, she also married um, a man called Sonny Pillay, or Pillay, I'm not really sure how his last name is said. So she marries Sonny in London. Uh, they get divorced a few months later. This is her second husband. Um, like I said, she only has the one kid. And uh, while she's there in the UK, 
she does record a few songs with Harry Belafonte, and then eventually he uh, brings her with him to the U.S. Uh, at that point, only 10 days after arriving in the country, uh, she was welcomed to perform on a show called The Steve Allen Show hmm. uh, to like a mainstream U.S. audience, and there were about 60 million people that would have tuned in for that so dang i mean that's massive numbers yeah like... pretty big deal especially because she'd only been there for 10 days so i guess like knowing harry belafonte was like that was that was good stuff oh i'm sure it was probably like he spoke you know what i mean to yeah. someone else and i was like hey you gotta hear this he really hooked her up uh and then after that performance which was in done in california then she spent most of her time from then on in new york and she did have, like, um, a kind of group of New York, uh, African-American artists and performers who became sort of the people that she would spend most of her time with. So we're going to get into more of the, like, how and why in the next episode. But I will say, while she is in the U.S., she will find out that uh, South Africa has canceled her passport and she is not welcome back in the country. And so from that point, she becomes sort of an exile. Mm. And uh, we'll get more into the details of it next time. But we are going to finish this episode here for today uh, while she's sort of starting her life in the U.S. And then we'll pick up there in the next one. Um, so thank you, Kara, for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Now I'm like, I'm like, now I'm already like, you're like, what happened? (laughs) I mean, obviously, I know she lives till like 2008 or something. But I'm kind of like, can you imagine you're just like, performing and then your home country where you're from and you live most of your life is like, nope, you're not welcome back. (laughs) By the way, don't come back. And that's wild to me, because at that point, she would have been getting like, show stardom, so to speak. Wouldn't you want to, like, I guess not if you're an oppressive government, right? You don't want any dissension if you're an oppressive unless government. They, unless they found that they could have controlled her, which I don't think she ever would have let them do. Like, if they could have used her to, like, spread specific messages to Spread their propaganda. Africa, yeah, then they would want that. But she never really seemed interested in that, so I don't think it would have worked. She's too authentic for them, yeah. basically. So that was an issue. But yeah, so she ends up becoming essentially stateless. And so that's where we're leaving the tale for now. Um, But yeah, so I'm glad to be getting to talk about her. She's really fun. And uh, we will pick up with the next episode. In the meantime, I'll just remind you all where you can find me. First of all, all the ways you can find me are in the uh show notes i will also put in the show notes links to youtube videos if you want to listen to these songs again i do it i am intending to try to put little clips of the songs in the episode but for the whole song uh you can find all the youtube links in the show notes but you guys can follow me on twitter it's at happy history pod instagram is at happy hour history pod my facebook if you just search happy hour history or happy hour history podcast uh, you should find my little green logo 
My email is happyhourhistorypod at gmail.com. I also have a Patreon. You guys can join my Patreon if you are so inclined. It is patreon.com slash happyhourhistorypod. And most importantly, if you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you guys can like rate and review the show, I would really appreciate it. It's free to do, and I like to see what you guys think. So please do that if you can. And thank you so much, Kara, for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Um, now for part two. No. Yeah. <laughs>